I was 16 years old when I came to know clearly that God was calling me into uh, the work of a vocational pastor. And I was really prepared for that in ways that I didn't appreciate at the moment. Um, I had an easy access to my pastor growing up, not only because he was my pastor, but, but uh, also because he was a, a family friend. And so in that private time and public time, I began to really get a grasp of what the private life and the public life of a pastor was. And because I was in church almost every Sunday, in a very simple way, I thought I knew what the pastor's job was. Uh, the pastor's job, simply in my mind as a 16-year-old, was to explain God to people. That's what I thought. And I thought, in order to be able to do that, you have to go to this place called seminary. And so I went to college, got a broadcast journalism degree, which has been absolutely worthless to me. And then I went on to seminary to prepare myself theologically. And I went through the typical seminary progression. I showed up on campus fall of 1988, New Orleans, Louisiana, ready to soak it all in. I was humble. I was hungry. I was eager to learn. But very quickly, I began to succumb to the temptation that uh, far too many seminarians fall prey to in their early years. I swapped hungle, humble and hungry and uh, eager to learn with being prideful and satisfied that I really knew it all. I mean, I, as, I, as I began to devour my theology books and as I began to learn the languages, I became convinced that I knew everything that there was to know. And if you doubted that I knew everything there was to know about God, all you needed to do was to ask me. And then God did me a favor. He interrupted my seminary training for several years, not allowing me to pick it back up again until I was a husband, father of two preschoolers, and pastoring a small rural Tennessee church. In order to pick up seminary again, it was a Herculean effort, not only by me, but really by my entire family. I lived 146.6 miles away, my driveway to the seminary parking lot, the Extension Center of New Orleans Seminary in Birmingham, Alabama. And I had to do that three days a week. I took my day off on Mondays. I left at 6, got home at 1230 at night, classes for the most part all day during that. I would work until 3.30. I would get in my car. I'd drive to Birmingham, grab a quick dinner, be in class from 6 to 10, and then come back and get home at 12.30 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then I mashed all of being a husband and a father and the pastor of a small rural southern church in the midst of all of that. And I frankly do not know how we were able to get it all done. More than me, I don't know how my wife was able to get it all done. I mean, she was functionally a single mom during those years. But here's what I began to learn and the benefit of it as I took up seminary again almost 10 years later. I learned that there was a difference between knowing about God, knowing some facts, knowing some theological formulas, and actually knowing about God, knowing God in a functional real way to be able to help the people whom I pastored because, you know, my little neat theological formulas didn't really help them a whole lot. They needed to have someone who was deeply ingrained in life with God to be able to, out of the overflow of that, shepherd them and to help them. Don't get me wrong, seminary was invaluable to me. And because it was invaluable to me, it's invaluable to you in ways that you may not realize. But 
What I'm saying is I couldn't benefit from learning about God until I had deeply rooted myself in the idea that God is ultimately unknowable. He is ultimately beyond, beyond description, beyond knowledge, and beyond us. And to dive into that idea today, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture, an extended passage of Scripture that we're going to kind of summarize this morning. It's found in Exodus chapter 7. We will look at the plagues of Egypt together today. Those plagues, beginning in Exodus 7-8, are the intersection between God's incomprehensibility and desire to be known which is at the heart of everything in a way that is probably more clear than any other place in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament. The plagues show a God who purposely extends the timeline of both, of both judgment and deliverance when he could have easily made both happen immediately. They show us a God who hardens Pharaoh's heart and yet can say without contradiction that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And they show us a God who is terrifying and yet is also compassionate. Were we to deal with the plagues on Egypt as we do most passages, we barely have enough time today left to read the, the passage in its entirety, much less preach up from it verse by verse. But our journey through Exodus is better suited to kind of a summary of these uh, plagues, which you ought to be grateful for because how would you like to spend the next 10 weeks saying, well, this bad thing happened, and then this bad thing happened? That would be really affirming to you, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So we're going we're gonna to summarize all of these today, but we can see what God is up to, I think, better when we do, because they are very, very neatly packaged. I want to show you a chart on the screen that I found in my study for this series of messages that shows how these are packaged in ways that you may not have thought of. There's always a very clear pattern that repeats itself three times. You see uh, that a plague is announced. There's a forewarning of it. There's a warning. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, uh, this is going to happen. There's an instruction formula. Here's what you need to do. That is repeated in the second plague. But at the end of the second plague in each cycle, Pharaoh says, you know what? I'm not going to let you go. I told you I would, but I'm not going to let you go. And in response to that, there is a plague that has no forewarning. There is no time of warning to Pharaoh, and there's no instruction formula. God just unleashes it. The other thing that you need to see is that these things escalate in their intensity as we go through it. Now, I know we've got some Bible students in here, and right now you're trying to write all that down. Don't do that. Take a picture with your phone, all right? Just take a picture of it with your phone, and you're going to be okay. And if your phone is bad, if you've got like a flip phone out there or something, first of all, I want to meet you. But if, <laughs> if, if you've got a, you know, a phone that's not getting you a good picture, email me, and uh, we'll get that sent to you. But I think that chart is helpful. But there's another part to the structure of the, the plagues that I noticed as I read through them and prepared this message, I began to see a very clear repetition that is clearly meant by Moses, who we believe to be the author, to catch our eye. You can grab your Bibles and do this quickly, or you can just turn your attention to the screens. Let me show you some things. In Exodus 8.10, 
It says, and he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. I want you to pay attention to those three words, you may know. And then I want you to see how they happen over and over again. Next passage of Scripture, Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. We see it again show up in Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. He's speaking to Pharaoh and on your servants and on your people so that, there it is again, you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. A little later in Exodus chapter 9, we see it show up again. Verse 29, Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out, of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Then in chapter 10, it shows up again in Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And then one more time in Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There's just a high, high um, occurrence of that phrase, you may know in the plagues spoken both to Pharaoh, that you may know that I am the Lord, and to the people of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord. It showed up so much to me that I used my very, very good Bible study software, and I went on a hunch, and I searched for all of the occurrences of the words, you may know, in the Old Testament. There's 18 of them, a third of them, a third of them take place in the plagues of Egypt. So, it, it's a Kind of the overwhelming conclusion, if you were to be asked, what is the purpose of the plagues? It's, it's God making himself known. And that thought in itself, God judging horrifically for the purpose of making himself known, may be incomprehensible to some of you, maybe most of you this morning. And the reason that God making himself known through these powerful acts of judgment may be incomprehensible is because of how God has been, as author Matthew Barrett puts it, domesticated in our minds. In his book, None Greater, which if you need a book recommendation, I highly recommend it to you, Matthew Barrett, None Greater, this is what he writes. God is just not a greater being than us, as if he were merely different in degree, a type of superman. No, this God is different in kind. He is a different kind of being altogether. I want you to stop and think about how we process the concept of God in our minds. I mean, we typically tend to think of God as just like the perfect version of us. But that's flawed in its premise. God is not the perfect version of us. He is an entirely different being. And so when we try to project on him our, our constraints for understanding and our value systems, we're going to be wrong time and time again. God himself tells us that. In Isaiah 46, 5, he says, To whom will you liken me and make me your equal and compare me that we may be alike? 
The answer is no one. You can't compare God to you or the best person you've ever known. God is different altogether. And so for us to think that, you know, these plagues were really unnecessary, he could have condensed it, he didn't have to prolong it, is just flawed. It's flawed thinking at the outset. So what's the solution to all of that? You know what some people have chosen? Agnosticism, atheism. God just doesn't make sense to me in my mind. So either he exists and is completely unknowable or he doesn't exist at all. But the other choice, the choice that many of you have made, even if you're not fully aware of it, the choice that I've made, is to accept the invitation to know him that what theologians call his strange ways present to us. This God is incomprehensible, but knowable and wants to be known. And if I start there and then begin to read the plagues, what might I come to know about the God who's making himself known through him? First, I think that we would know that the Lord is the only God. He is the only God. This is the clear point of the first, you may know, in Exodus 8.10. But I want us to back out from that verse so that we can get a full context. Exodus chapter 8, verses 8 through 11, we get the full context of the end of the plague of the frogs. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs from me and my people. The earlier verses say they were everywhere, and by everywhere I mean everywhere to infinity. They were just crawling with frogs. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord if this happens. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. That's fancy Bible talk for saying, You tell me when and I'll get God to back them off. And being the rocket scientist Pharaoh is, he says, Tomorrow. You know, I just want to live through frogs being in my bed and everywhere else one more night just to kind of, you know, dwell in the experience, and then you can get rid of them. No wonder the guy loses his army a few chapters later. So he says, verse 10, tomorrow, and Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people and they shall be left only in the Nile. Now, I want you to stop and think about how you process the plagues in general. I think we tend to think of the plagues in general as just being the product of kind of a twisted and sadistic mind in God. Like he says in heaven, you know what's gross? Frogs. I'm just going to send a whole lot of frogs to them. And that's kind of how we think about the plagues. But the Egyptian god of fertility is named Heket. And in idolic representations of this deity, it has the head of a frog. And so, the purpose of the plague of frogs is to say, I control frogs. I am the one who can call them to be a torment to you, and I am the one who can make them all go away. He takes what is worshipped as a god and then unleashes it against the worshipers in the most intense way possible and then kills them to show that he is greater 
than the gods that they are worshiping. That's the reason Moses says when the frogs go away that Pharaoh will have another proof that there is no other God. The God of Israel is the only God. The judgment was so that Egypt would know that the Lord is the only God. Now, we're way too sophisticated for idolatry, aren't we? I mean, we are. We tell ourselves that. I mean, we barely, barely can get our minds around worshiping the unseen God. Surely, we're not going to fall prey to thinking this thing I bought at Target is going to dictate my life. We can't fall prey to idolatry. So when you hear people like me talk about idolatry, you tend to hear me uh, talk to you about misplaced priorities. This thing is more important than God. You still believe in God, but this thing is more important than God. So we really think we're immune as moderns to idolatry in any real way. We don't actually worship something as a replacement for the one true God in our lives. So we don't need to be reminded that there is no God but God, do we? Do we? Romans 1, which I graciously gave to Jonathan to preach from uh, when I was on sabbatical, and so he got to tell you for, for six weeks what sinners you were, and he really enjoyed that. The end of Romans 1, it outlines the origins of sin by zeroing in on idolatry and says... Over and over again, God gave humanity over to their lusts and up to their passions, essentially showing that God poured out his wrath against idolatry by frustrating the worshipers with intense manifestations of it, frustrating people with absurd amounts of what we claimed to worship. Read the end of Romans 1 when you get home and you'll see that's what's going on. So think about that and then ponder with me. Could it be, could it be that we worship our ability to understand and control the forces of nature? And so God gave us over to a virus that we could neither understand or stop and maybe was even of our own creation? Could it be that we worship our radical self-determination and so God is giving us over to an identity crisis as a, as a culture, as a world, that keeps us from even being able to say definitively what a male and a female is? And listen closely. Could it be that we worship our country? And so God has given us over to an extremism on the right and the left that threatens to undo the very thing that we bow to. In other words, could it be that everything that has rocked us and divided us these last three plus years have been a plague sent by God to uncover our idolatry and to show us that there is no God but God. One thing I know for sure, if Jesus' followers can't figure it out, nobody else is. Something to think about. The plagues in Egypt show us that there is no God but God. But they also help us 
know that the Lord is the Almighty God. The Almighty God. Let me show you a dominant theme that shows up several times in the You May Know statements. When announcing that the flies would cover all parts of Egypt except, except that portion occupied by the Hebrews, God says through Moses in Exodus 8.22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that the swarms of flies, no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord. And then look at that, in the midst of the earth. When God is announcing that the plagues would affect Pharaoh's household personally, God says through Moses in Exodus 9.14, look at it. It says, For this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me. See it? In all the earth. And then when God says through Moses that he will stop the plague of hail, he says in Exodus 9.22, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. I want you to see a theme here. God is taking all of creation, the whole earth, and leveraging it as its ruler to say, I am God Almighty. In the ancient way of viewing things, different gods had different portions of the creation. So you would appeal to this God for fertility and this God for crops and this God for a, a good family and this God for luck. But God is saying, I am the only God of the earth. I'm the only God there is. I am God Almighty. And to prove it, I am master over it to the extent that I am controlling your experience of it. Perhaps the greatest loss resulting from Sion advancement is the loss of wonder. We've been able to discern the rules and the complexity that order our universe, but we can't see past the order to see the orderer. We have lost any sense of what it means to say that God is the almighty God, the all-powerful God, all, all over the forces of nature. There are two ways, I think, to recover this. One's, let's just call it the Egyptian way, not very pleasant. Because in getting all recovered there, what has to happen is that God has to overwhelm you with his omnipotence to highlight your impotence. He has to show you that you're utterly and completely lacking in any kind of control or self-determination. That way is the way of judgment. It is uh, what awaits all who fail to take into account the other path for recovering awe. And that is the way of worshiping as a creature at the feet of the Creator, to worshiping this God as the Almighty God. And let's make sure we know what worship is. Worship is not 20 minutes before preaching. It's not some songs. It's not a feeling. Worship's a declaration that you are worth all. You are worth everything. And when you do that and, and feel how small you are, then, then you can begin to understand that the God that we worship blithely here many times on a Sunday morning 
is the Almighty God. Which leads us to the last thing that we are meant to know about the incomprehensible God by reflecting on the Egyptian plagues. They teach us to know that the Lord is the saving God, the God who saves. That last, you may know, occurs in the announcement of the tenth and awful climactic plague upon Egypt. And it's spoken here in a way unlike the previous uh, several. I want you to look at verse 4 of Exodus chapter 11, where it says this, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle. I mean, what we've lost, I think, many times in our, uh, you know, movie representation of this that you'll probably watch this week at some point. Is, is that the firstborn was more than just the firstborn of people. The first birds, cattle, livestock, everything in Egypt. Everything in Egypt that was the firstborn died. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, and here it is, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Here's ultimately where the plagues were leading for Pharaoh and his people. There is a difference in your experience of me as as the only God, as God Almighty. If you have rejected me, you get judgment. But if you have 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 become my people, then you get my mercy. I am not the God of plagues. I am the saving God. There's a difference between belonging to God and not. That's the double underline that falls under the plague. So in the midst of the carnage of judgment, which is incomprehensible, and the very concept of which have caused many people to decide, I don't accept the idea of God. In the midst of all of that is God saving his people. And it is this saving aspect of God's character that is at the very center of what we began to think about when we started this morning, the glory of God. I would suggest to you that knowing that the Lord is a saving God is the north star that can guide you to him in the midst of the fearsome knowledge of a God who is impossible to figure out. The, the thing that I think the plagues should have shown us more than anything else in some respects this morning is that the God we worship is not safe. He cannot be tamed. He cannot be leveraged for our agendas. God is not safe. It's very much like the, the allegory, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe when Lucy goes to Mr. Beaver and is learning about Aslan the lion and she asks, because it's a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. 
And when we see all of these things pouring out on Egypt in judgment, to those of us who have taken time to reflect upon it, we see a God who's not safe. But in that last statement, we see a God who is good. And to make it very, very simple for us, God did an amazing thing. He gave us Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author is pouring over really some, some things about the idea of God that is incomprehensible and, and the mission of Jesus which are incomprehensible. And he says, we don't see these things. We don't see the answer to these things. But then he says, and he says it just like this, but we see him. We see Jesus. Jesus has taken all that can't be known about God and simplified it in its purest form and let us know his heart. And his heart is of a God that saves. His heart is that he is a God of mercy. He can't be contained by our neat and tidy theological formulas as necessary as those theological formulas are. You can spend the rest of your life trying to know about him and you will conclude that knowing him fully is impossible. But you can know Jesus. And as we celebrate his final climactic work this week, we recognize that he took the judgment that we deserved on himself and on the cross shows us clearly God's not safe, but he is good. And his mercy is unending for those who call to him. My prayer is that you know God in that way. That you come to him as your Savior and as your Lord today if you've not done so. Would you join me in prayer, please?